Is there a desire in you to not just attend revival, but live in revival? Welcome to the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Saldivar. I've been in revival for the last 10 years, as well as traveling and being a part of many revivals throughout the United States. I'm going to be sharing with you how to live a radical lifestyle of revival on a daily basis that we're talking about the book of Revelation. Now, I'm going to teach in a way I've never taught before. We're going to go through the book. I want to eventually get through the entire book. I've done some end times teachings on the mark of the beast, on the second coming, on the rapture. I taught a lot out of Revelation, but I want to go through and give you a synopsis of the book and work our way through the book deeper. I want to talk about the four writers, the four horsemen as the weeks go on. But today, we're going to just talk about the opening part of the book of Revelation. And I believe all that is going on in the world, friend, if you don't know this, I want to blow the trumpet tonight and let you know that we are living in the last days. If you're not aware, I honestly believe that Jesus can come back at any moment. And so this is why with all that's going on in our world, it's essential that we study and know what the book of Revelation has to say. Now, again, we've done several teachings on the end times, but I want to go deeper. I want to do more of a systematic teaching on the book. And I want you to understand that the book of Revelation is not the revelation. If you're taking notes, I'm coming in strong. Start taking notes is not the revelation of the Antichrist. It is not the revelation of the end times. It is not the revelation of the mark of the beast. It is not the revelation of the tribulation or of the new Jerusalem. The book of Revelation, write this down, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if there's any book to get to know Jesus better, it's the book of Revelation. Now, a lot of people, they write the book off because they're confused by it. They don't understand it. Our goal is not to get so deep you go to sleep or get so deep that you need scuba gear. Our goal is to understand how could I apply the book of Revelation to my life. If we're to know Jesus better, we need to know this book. Do not be overwhelmed. Do not say, I just don't understand it, so I'm going to write it off. I'm going to help you understand it and apply it to your life because the book of Revelation reveals Jesus Christ. As we'll see as we study it, it shows Jesus' authority over the world, his victory over Satan, and his return in glory, his earthly rule for a thousand years, and his everlasting kingdom in the eternal state. This is what the book of Revelation covers, and it's a powerful book. It's one of my favorite books. My two favorite books of the Bible are the book of John and the book of Revelation. These are powerful books that unveil who Jesus is. And this is, guys, it, we are in the last days. I, I hate to tell you this. Listen, if you're not right with God, I want there to be an urgency in you tonight. You need to get right before you get left. Because I honestly believe, I know some people get scared talking to, when I talk about this, but I believe that at any second, the Lord is going to return for his people and the tribulation is going to begin. I don't believe we're 100 years away. I don't believe we're 50 years away. I believe that we are moments away, that we are a last time, end time generation based on the signs that I've studied, the things that I'm seeing in the world and what not only the book of Revelation says, but what the gospel says, the signs of the last time will be. Even all that's going on in Afghanistan is another sign. Everything going on with COVID is another sign. Guys, I want you to understand this. And I know a lot of guys say, don't preach doom and gloom, but I want you to understand that all these things going on are only signs that we're approaching the end of days, that we are in the last days and we are approaching the end times, the seven year tribulation period. So things are not, I'm sorry to tell you, going to get better as we get closer to the end. The Bible makes it clear that things are going to get more chaotic they're going to get more crazy, more death, more disease, more wars, more famines, more earthquakes, more all this is going to happen while the church sleeps. 
The church sound asleep, especially in America. The Western church sleeps in the light. Well, all this is going on. I'm going, Lord, where are the Jeremiah's of our generation? Where are the John's of our generation? Where are the Ezekiel's of our generation that are going to blow the trumpet? I hope you feel the fear of the Lord tonight and are going to make you realize that you don't have time to play church. We don't have time to go Sunday to Sunday. I preached this last week. I said, we don't have any more Sundays to waste. Pastors, wake up. Church, wake up. We need to blow the trumpet and sound the alarm because you might not have five more years to get right with God. And if you're like, oh, I'm just going to get right with God next year or in five years or in 10 years, you probably don't have that time. And what the book of Revelation does is it unfolds God's end time plan. It literally unveils the end time plan of God. God does not hide it. It's not a mystery. It's not a secret. He puts what his end game is in a book. And I don't know if you've read the end of this thing, but spoiler alert, we win in the end. Friend, we win. You are, oh, I felt the Holy Ghost fire tonight. You are on the winning side. I think so often we live our lives as if we're losing. And we might seem like we're losing now, but at the end of the story, you are victorious. You are more than a conqueror. You have overwhelming victory in Christ. The devil does not win. The Antichrist does not win. I love preaching about the destruction of the Antichrist. I love preaching about the destruction of the enemy, how he gets chained up and thrown in the lake of fire. One of my favorite verses, Revelation 20, where the false prophet and the beast get thrown in the lake of fire for all of eternity. You're a winner. You're not a loser. So maybe you feel like I'm on the wrong side, that Christians are weak, that Christians never win, that it feels like the world is always advancing, friend, it might appear. But remember, the justice of God, the Bible says, will not be mocked, and we do not lose. We win at the end of the story. Stop living your life. Hear the prophetic word tonight. Stop living your life like you are a loser. Friend, Satan is a loser. Literally, I'm not calling names. I believe we shouldn't slander angels or demons or the devil, but he's literally a loser. Have you read the story? The book of Revelation unveils the plan of God for the last days, and the plan of God is his triumph over Satan's kingdom. Now, Satan has a kingdom right now. If you don't know that, turn on the TV. That's established in the earth, but God is going to overthrow Satan's kingdom. Revelation reveals there's a man coming back, a Jewish man, and he's not weak. He's not going to be destroyed. He's going to overcome and overthrow. Now, here's the interesting thing. Satan has to hide his plans. Think about this. God unveils his end time plan in Revelation. Satan has to hide his plans. Everything about Satan's kingdom is hidden and mysterious. If you think about cults, if you think about the occult, if you think about all the darkness and everything going on, it's always hidden. All these cults are sworn to secrecy. It's always in the dark. And here's why. Because Satan knows if we knew his plan, we have so much power, we would overthrow him. That's why I'm constantly exposing his works. Tomorrow night, we're going to expose his works again. Why? Because he wants to hide them from the church. He doesn't want the church to realize he's alive and well, working to destroy the body of Christ. And for those of you that are like, oh, we'll just ignore him and he'll go away. Understand he doesn't want the world. He already owns the world. The Bible says he is the lowercase God of this world. He wants you because he doesn't own you. So he works overtime to bring division in your marriage. He works overtime to bring division in the church. He works overtime. There is a spirit of division. 
If you look at all the racial tension, even with COVID and who's vaccinated, who's not, who's wearing a mask, who's not. And this person, every year, there's a new spirit of division. There's a spirit of division bringing new division in the church, but we're on to the plans of the enemy. Satan, we know what you're doing and we will not tolerate it in Jesus' name. But your power is broken, your rule is broken, and your kingdom is being exposed and being destroyed. Now, maybe you're a soft Christian and you're like, I'm afraid I don't want to talk about, and you just need to talk only about Jesus, then this is not for you. This is not for you. If you're one of those soldiers that doesn't want to talk about warfare, this is not for you. This is for believers that go, no, I'm not going to sit around while the devil destroys my family. I'm not going to sit around at bingo night while the devil destroys my marriage. I'm not going to sit around while the devil takes global influence. When I have the kingdom of almighty God, I'm a warrior. Come on, what does that shirt say? I have the kingdom of God on the inside of me. So some of you might say, what do you think about this pastor that's talking bad about you because you preach so much spiritual? What do you think about this leader? I think that they're in the stands, that they're cheerleaders. And honestly, I can care less because I've been called to be a warrior for God. I got enlisted. I was an atheist. And God enlisted me into his army. So do you, do you honestly think, do you, any of you honestly think I care with some soft pastors have to say, what some Pharisees have to say? You honestly think I'm moved and like, oh no, they're going to think bad about me. I couldn't care less. Paul said, if I cared what the religious people thought, I wouldn't be a slave of Christ. So understand that Satan hides his works because he knows if you knew his plan, he'd have no chance. And God is so powerful come on help me god is so powerful he says satan you can know my plan and still you won't be able to stop me think about that god writes his end time plan to overthrow satan's kingdom in a book and satan could read think about this satan can read how god's going to destroy him and he still can't win think about this before satan even empowers the antichrist because remember the antichrist will be empowered by the dragon who is satan before satan even empowers the antichrist he can read a book and it'll, it'll show him that Christ in one breath is going to defeat the Antichrist and every army in the world. One of my favorite verses is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, that says, Then the man of lawlessness, who's the Antichrist, will be revealed. But the Lord Jesus, oh, come on, help me preach tonight, Holy Ghost. The Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. So Jesus destroys, I've talked about before in the past, the battle of Armageddon, destroys the Antichrist and all the armies of the world that gather to fight the rider of the white horse, who is Jesus Christ. He destroys him with his appearance and his breath. God's like, I'm not going to send a nuclear bomb to destroy the Antichrist. This is the one that the Bible says the Antichrist tramples angels. Like no one can defeat him. He's the most powerful human aside from Jesus that will ever walk the earth empowered by Satan. And the Bible says, come on, Holy Ghost. The Bible says that by his appearance and his breath, the Antichrist is destroyed. So don't think that the devil wins. Don't think he's powerful. God goes, I'm going to put it in a book and Satan, you still can't stop me. So understand nothing that Satan will do can stop God's end time plan that the book of Revelation reveals. The book of Revelation, here's another reason why I love it, answers so many questions that you have and that the world has questions like what's going to happen in the future what does the future hold for me will there be an apocalypse will there be an armageddon uh is jesus really coming back is the world ending what is the mark of the beast when's the antichrist who is he when's he going to take the global stage all of that and more can be found in the book of revelation how about this 
What does Jesus have to say to his church? Have you thought about this? If Jesus can speak directly to his church, what would he say? And this is what the book of Revelation unveils. Now, people are so desperate to see what their future holds. They'll go to horoscopes. They'll go to palm readers. They'll go to psychics. They'll call psychic hotlines just to figure out what their future holds, just to figure out what's in the future. And all the while, God has written not only in Revelation, but also in the book of Daniel and the book of Ezekiel and other places, all about the future of planet Earth, the human race, and what we could expect is coming. This is all written in the Bible. So friend, you don't have to go to a horoscope or call a psychic to know what the future holds. All you have to do is open up your Bible and say, God, give me, and say, God, give me eyes to see what does your scripture say. Friend, here's the thing I love about the book of Revelation. When you know what the future holds, you don't have to live in fear. You will understand that God is in control, that God is on the throne, and that God has never lost a battle and is never going to lose a battle, that he's victorious, and because Christ is victorious, we are victorious. Doesn't it feel good? Where are you guys tonight? I'm reading the chat. Doesn't it feel good to be on the winning side? Doesn't it feel good to, that, to know that before the battle even begins, we already win? So Revelation is a book about the future. It reveals more details about the end of time than any other book in the Bible. The word revelation, I'm teaching you guys tonight. The word revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which comes from the word we get, the word apocalypse from. Now, most people think apocalypse means a catastrophe or a terrible event, but it's not. It actually means an unveiling or a disclosure. It's when something is unveiled or revealed. That's what revelation means. It's from the word apocalypse. And it speaks of revealing something that was hidden. So God says, I'm going to take the mysteries that are hidden, the things that are hidden, the future events, and my plan for the last days, and I'm going to reveal them to you. So in revelation, the Holy Spirit brings back the curtain and unveils the mystery of God to us and makes these things known. The things that are not known, he makes them known. Now, according to Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, I'm going to go through the book of Revelation if you're not ready for this. This is a book of prophecy. It's not a book of symbolism, of allegories, or riddles. It's a book of prophecy. It makes specific and precise predictions of future events. In other words, the stuff in the book of Revelation, write this down, is actually going to happen. When you read about the trumpet sounding, the bowls being poured out, and you read about the seals being broken, you read about the Antichrist rising up, the tribulation period, the suffering, the Jewish evangelists, 144,000, the two witnesses, you need to understand that this is all literally going to happen. The opening verse is telling us that Jesus sent an angel to tell his servant John of these future events. So John is writing down what the angel is revealing to him. The book of Revelation reveals symbolism. There's a lot of symbolism. Not everything is literal, although everything in the book of Revelation will literally happen. But there is symbolism throughout the book. The opening vision of Jesus portrays him with white hair, fiery brass feet, and a sword flashing out of his mouth. Revelation also, you're going to see throughout the book, speaks of many sevens. The seven lampstands, the seven spirits before the throne of God, the seven trumpets, the seven seals, the seven thunders. Now you might be going like, what's up with all the sevens in the book of Revelation? In the Bible, seven is the number of completeness. Seven days made a complete week and seven days God created the world. Well, in six days, on the seventh day, he rested. But seven is the number of completeness. 
So the reason why you're going to see seven throughout the book of Revelation is it reveals that the book of Revelation is a complete revelation of God, a complete judgment of God, and a complete church. Now, the author of the book of Revelation, type one if this is good, the author of the book of Revelation is actually Jesus Christ. Okay, Jesus Christ gives a message to an angel, and an angel gives the message to the apostle John, and John wrote it down. But don't think of the author of the book of Revelation as John. I want you to think of it as Jesus. Everything in the book of Revelation was revealed to John by an angel that was revealed to the angel by Jesus. So in the early years of John was a Galilean fisherman. His dad was Zebedee. His mom was Salome. His older brother was the martyr James, who in the Bible in Acts chapter 12, verse 2, ended up getting martyred. So you need to understand that this is John writing but as you read, realize that John is getting his revelation from an angel who got the information from Jesus. So this is not John trying to write his bestseller. This is the apostle John getting a revelation from an angel. Now understand that John was part of Jesus's inner circle along with James and Peter. The group was invited into things that the other disciples didn't get invited into. Like when Jesus healed Jairus's daughter in Capernaum, the Lord took with him, the Bible says, Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. Again, we see Peter, James, and John in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's three, again, accompanied further into the garden where Peter, James, and John. So you're going to see that they have a special revelation. So it makes sense that Jesus gave this revelation to the apostle John. Now, beyond that, we see John, who's my favorite disciple, as having a special intimacy with Jesus Christ that the other disciples didn't have. In John's gospel, which is interesting, over and over again, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, Jesus Lord loved all of his disciples, but Jesus did have a special bond with John. Now, we know that Jesus reveals his secrets to his prophets, according to the book of Amos, and to those that are close to him, he reveals his secrets. So the closer you are, it seems as if John was especially close to Jesus, and it made sense that Jesus revealed himself to John. John, the Bible says, laid his head on the bosom, the, um, the bosom of Jesus. And this was him hearing some people say his heartbeat. So again, among all the disciples, John stood out. John was the one that was at the foot of the cross. When all the other disciples weren't there, John was there. So you need to understand, John wrote that Jesus gave his life for the sins of the world. John 3.16. So John also was entrusted in the care of Jesus' mother after Jesus died. John, who ran, was the one that ran to the tomb and believed first when Jesus was resurrected. John was the one who wrote the book of Revelation on the island of Patmos. So John is on this island and John is writing this book. Now, tradition tells us that John did not die on the island, but returned to Ephesus where he lived out the rest of his life. Now, here's the interesting thing I want to tell you about the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation of all the books of the Bible gives a specific promise to those that read it. Revelation chapter one, verse three says, God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to the message and obey what it says for the time is near. So think about this. The book of Revelation says, those that preach it, preach this word, those that read this word, and those that listen to this word, get a special blessing, are blessed. God actually blesses those. There's no other book in the Bible that says, if you do this, you're going to be blessed. So in other words, here's what the book of Revelation is saying. Read me and there's a guaranteed blessing. There's a guaranteed something attached to reading the book of Revelation. And I want you to note, as we start this book, that John opens the book 
by introducing the main character of the book, and that is Jesus Christ. John opens with Jesus as the main theme and keeps him the main theme throughout the book. The main theme of Revelation, I hope you're getting this tonight, is not the Antichrist, is not the tribulation, is not the wrath of God being poured out. They are, understand this, they are, it is Jesus Christ. He's the main character. He's the main theme. Now, I want you to notice it's the book of Revelation, not the book of Revelations. It's not the book about Revelation. It's the book of Revelation. So it's not just a bunch of analogies and stories and end time events regarding the future. It's a revelation of a person and it's Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter one, verses four through eight says this. This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come from the sevenfold spirit before his throne and from Jesus Christ, he is the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead and the ruler of all the kings of the world. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from sins by shedding his blood for us. He has made us a kingdom of priests for God, his father, all glory and power to him forever and ever. This is the opening statement of the book of Revelation. And then it says, look, he comes with the clouds of heaven and everyone will see him even those who pierced him and all the nations of the world will mourn him. Yes, amen. And then he says this in verse eight, I am the alpha and the omega. I am the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, who was, and is still to come the almighty one. So I want you to notice it says he was and is and is still coming. This is the theme of the book. Jesus, the one who died, the one who rose from the grave is coming back for his church coming back to this planet. I think we've lost sight of this in the church that there is a man coming back to planet earth, a Jewish man. He's not coming back as a servant. He's coming back as a ruling king. Many of you believe that Jesus you think is gonna come back and die on the cross again. No, he is coming back to establish a government that is never going to end and is going to rule the earth. The Bible says he has robes that are dripping in blood and it's not his blood. It's the blood of his enemies. Does this not excite us that he's coming back? Does this not make you excited that our God is coming back and is going to rule the nations that he is? Come on, chat. The lion of the tribe of Judah. This is the king that we wait for that is going to rapture his people and establish a government. And the Bible says we are going to rule and reign with Christ. Now, please don't think of this as some mystical fairy tale reality. This is an ever-present reality that he's coming back. And John says, I'm going to open this book by letting you know that there's a man. Come on, chat, hear me, because I feel the fear of the Lord. That there is a man, a Jewish man from Nazareth, that is coming back to rule this nation. That every wrong thing is going to be made right. And that he's going to exalt himself and he's going to rule and reign over every king. Not just a king, but he's the king above all kings. He's a Lord above all Lords. He's the one that holds the seven stars in his hands that, ha that walks among the midst of the seven lampstands. So he's coming back to rule him. This is the theme of Revelation. Jesus wins. Here's the theme. Are you ready? Write it down. Jesus wins over every ruler, over every king. When all the armies of the earth gather at Armageddon to battle the Lord, the rider of the white horse, Jesus wins. The devil does not win. It might look like he's winning, but understand that Jesus wins and we need to live from a place of victory. Now, John is, John is now going to have an encounter after writing this, 
that would lead him to write the book. He tells us he first heard something, then he saw something, then he did something, and he wrote everything down that God directed him to write down. That's not his revelation. It's God's revelation. So John is not sitting there going, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a best-selling book so that I could sell a lot of copies and get famous on YouTube or Facebook. He says, no, I'm going to write down directly from God the words that God is giving me. These are direct words from God. Revelation chapter 1 verse 10 says this, it was the Lord's day and I was worshiping in the spirit. This is John writing this. It was the Lord's day. I was worshiping in the spirit and suddenly... Now, here's what I want you to understand. Friend, when you worship in the spirit, when you pray in the spirit, when you're in prayer, you can have a suddenly encounter at any moment you can encounter God. At any moment, God can reveal something to you. So understand that when you're worshiping and you're praying and you're in the spirit and you're in, in that deep place of intercession, expect suddenlies, expect encounters. I'm believing, Lord, I need more encounters in my life. I need more suddenlies in my life. John is worshiping. I want you to notice when he encounters God and he hears his voice, it was during the place of worship. So please stop expecting to have dramatic encounters when watching Netflix. Stop expecting to have dramatic encounters when on Instagram. Stop expecting dramatic encounters when you're not in the spirit. John's in the spirit. And the Bible says this in verse uh, chapter one, verse 10. Suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. And it said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So he's going to give them a message for seven churches. These are relevant to us because we are a part of these churches. We are followers of Jesus Christ. These are prophetic letters, not only to current churches, but also to the church of the future. So John says, saw nothing but he heard something and then he hears a loud voice as sounded like a trumpet. Now, how many know if God wants to get your attention, God can. God can speak loudly to you. Some of you think God is quiet like your favorite preacher and you can't stand that I'm always shouting and you can't stand that I'm always blowing the trumpet. But friend, this is the way that God has anointed me. If you wonder why I'm always shouting, I don't know what to tell you other than God has anointed me to be an alarm clock in these last days. God has anointed me to be a trumpet. So if you're waiting for me to be calm and to be not shouting, it's not going to happen. God has called me and God has anointed me to be a trumpet. And I really believe the deeper that the church sleeps, write this down, the louder that God is going to shout. So if you didn't think that God shouted in the Bible, John said the voice was so loud, it was like a trumpet blasting. It was loud. In fact, if you look at the prophetic voices in scripture, Oftentimes, God would say, shout this message to Israel or shout unto God with a voice of triumph. And again, if you don't like shouting, there's a thousand, hundred thousand other preachers that are very calm, very collected, very quiet. But when I get up here, I get the anointing on me. I start preaching. God starts speaking through me. There's a shout about me. I shout and I, I make noise and I get excited. I can't stand here. I'm impressed by those that can and preach the word of God passionless. I don't understand how guys have no passion when preaching the word of God, God wants to get your attention. God wants to speak loudly to you to get your attention. When God encountered me, he spoke loudly. He spoke my name and it sounded like a thousand people at once speaking. It was the voice of God speaking as if it was a trumpet. Now, John hears Revelation 1.10. Now we're going into Revelation chapter 1 verse 12. And now John sees. He says, then I turned to see who was speaking to me. I saw seven gold lampstands and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the son of man. I get chills reading this. 
He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like a mighty, like mighty ocean waves. This is the voice of God. His thundering loud like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, here's my response. Notice what John says in verse 17 of chapter 1. John saw the Lord. He did not start having holy laughter. Come on. He did not just lay out on his back and just flail a little bit. He did not just come to an altar. Get No, he said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died. But look. I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Friend, verse 18, understand that our God holds the keys to death and the grave. He has the power now over death and the grave. He's defeated both of them so that we don't have to taste spiritual death. But in verse 19, he says, write down what you've seen, both the things that are happening now and things that are going to happen. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars. Now we're going to get the revelation of what the seven stars are. He said, here's the mystery of the seven stars in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars, listen to this, are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, when he says the angels of the seven churches, these are the pastors, the leaders, the spokespeople, because the word angel means messenger. So these are those that are running my church. These are the seven most prominent churches of the day. And I want to address the leaders of the churches I'm going to address the lampstands, which are the churches, the lampstands bringing light. Now, notice verse 20 explains what these are. He talks about the angels. A lampstand was made to give light, to dispel darkness, and to show people the way out. That's what a lampstand was made for. Now, this is the call of the church. Our call as churches is to give light to the world, dispel darkness, and to show people the way out of their sin, the way out of their bondage. The world, the Bible says, lies in darkness. So notice the book of Revelation tells us what the purpose of the church is. It's not to be a nice place for your family. It's not to be a sanitized place where you could have bingo night and where you could have good events. It is a place to bring light, to expel the darkness, and to show people the way out of bondage, the way out of sin. Jesus is the light. Jesus in John 8, 8 12, he not only claimed to be the light of the world in John chapter 8, verse 12, but he also told the disciples in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, that they are the light of the world. So Jesus says, not only am I the light of the world, but you are the light of the world. Friend, understand that you are the light of the world, that your life is called to shine light into other people's darkness and to set those that are in bondage free. God has anointed you and God has called you to dispel darkness. Jesus is like the sun, he's the source of light. In fact, if you understand, when the new Jerusalem comes, the Bible says there will be no need for sun because Jesus radiates light. So Jesus is like the sun. We are like the moon. This, the moon reflects the sun. We're called to reflect the glory of God. He's the light. We are the reflection of the light. Now, Jesus also, the Bible says, stands among his church. He stands amidst the lampstands. So understand that we've been called as the body of Christ to dispel the darkness. Verse 13 describes a garment that reaches to his feet, speaking of his majesty and greatness. Verse 14, 
His head and hair were like wool. His eyes were like flames of fire. Now, I believe that the eyes of flames of fire are Jesus's ability to see everybody's heart. His eyes are like fire and they relate to his feet. The Bible says like fine brass as refined in a furnace. Verse 15. So the eyes of fire, we know that Jesus said, I can search the heart and the intentions of man, that he has fire in his eyes. Not only does the fire speak of him knowing our heart, knowing our thoughts and our intentions, but also the jealousy of God, that he is a jealous God. This is a God that judges, that rules, and that is jealous for you. Now, John's response is, what happens when John encounters him? He falls on his face because he recognizes that God is holy. This is what happened to Isaiah. Isaiah goes, in Isaiah chapter 6, I'm a man of unclean lips. And friend, I believe that we need a fresh revelation of the holiness of God. We need a fresh revelation of who God is. Church, we have gone so far from encounter. Come on, I'm reading the chat. Can we remember the last encounter we had that brought us to our knees? Can we remember the last time we fell as if we were dead because the presence of God was so strong? Friend, I'm telling you, we act so arrogant and haughty at the altar in the presence of God. But our God is holy. And I don't know why the modern church thinks that God is no longer holy. Like you could just text at the altar. You can just laugh at the altar. There's no reverence for the presence of God. I believe we need a fresh, come on, help me chat, preach, get some fire emojis or something. Help me. We need a fresh revelation of the holiness, of the power, of the fire, of the mercy, of his glory, of his true uh, power and might in the church so that our encounters are not, oh, I encountered God. I laugh a little bit. Holy laughter. Like what? Encounters with God bring us to our knees. I pray that you would have an encounter with God, that you would no longer think of Jesus as your homie or your buddy, but you would be on your knees saying, no, this God is holy. There is fire in his eyes that he has power to save. He has power to deliver. He has power to set the captive free. Who am I preaching to? Our God is alive and our God is holy. He's righteous. So we need to stop treating God like he's not a big deal. We need to stop treating God. John has his revelation and John falls to his knee. Lord, let us fall to our knees at your presence. Let us fall to our knees at your power. Let us understand the holiness and the true power in your presence. Lord, let us be, I want to be undone at his presence. I want his presence to reveal to me my sin. I want his presence to reveal to me I'm a man of unclean lips. Lord, there's pride in my life. Lord, there's anger in my life. Lord, there's bitterness in my life. I'm not going to settle for a, a half-hearted watered down weak encounter i want to say like the angels the seraphim in revelation says they sing holy 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 is the lord god almighty the one that was and is and is to come he is unlike any other god he's unlike all these other gods that have eyes but don't see have ears that don't that don't hear he is a holy god lord let your holiness enter your church once again let us be under the power of your holiness. I pray, Lord, that you would appear to us in our families, in our homes, to our children, Lord. Let us be like John. Let us fall at, you, at your feet in your holy majesty and your power. Father, I want this. Church, we need this. We're so far from encounter. We're so far from the book of Revelation, the encounter that John had. The voice says, come up here, John. I want to show you things. Friend, God wants to show us things. He wants to reveal things to us. And this is the first revelation in the book of Revelation is the seven churches of the book of Revelation. The seven letters 
Now understand before the book of Revelation is going to go into any events or anything about judgment or anything about the Antichrist or the mark of the beast, God says, I have to deal with my church first. And friend, I want to tell you that God is dealing. I know this is heavy. When I mean heavy, I mean convicting. God is dealing with his church once again. God always has something to say to churches, but we have too many preachers that care more about their agenda than about God's agenda. And if God was going to evaluate, I'm in America, I'm in California, the American church, what would God's evaluation be to the church today? What would God say to our country club, watered down, weak churches that are not threatening darkness, that are not preaching the cross, that are not preaching hell, that are not preaching repentance, that are not preaching holiness, that are not preaching encounter, and that are living this religious American life, what would God say? What rebuke would God give us? Now, going into chapter two, that was chapter one, the encounter John had. Going into chapter two, we're going to look at some of the churches that John writes to. Now, these are not exhaustive as every church out of the seven could have an hour-long message. We could preach, and I have in the past, an hour-long message on every church, but I want to give you an overview because we're starting to go through the book of Revelation tonight is obviously night number one. Obviously, I want to give you an overview to some of these churches. I've never covered these churches in my channel. I've never talked about them in detail in the channel. So I want to cover these because they're relevant to the church of today. Now, chapter two covers four churches and chapter three covers three churches. But I want to cover chapter two, which is the four churches and see what would God say to us in these churches. The first church, if you're taking notes, number one is the church of Ephesus. Now we're going to pick up in Revelation chapter two, verse one. And this is what the uh, angel says, write this letter to the angel of the church of Ephesus. Remember the angel being the pastor. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now we know this is Jesus because we just learned he's the one that holds these seven pastors, these seven stars, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. And this is what he says to the church. I know all the things you do. This is Jesus today speaking to you right now. This is the Lord speaking to you right now. Verse two, I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they're apostles, but are not. You've discovered they're liars. You've patiently suffered for me without quitting. This is amazing. Like this is Jesus giving all these amazing things to this church. But then he says this in, in verse four, but I have this complaint against you. This is Jesus to us tonight, not to some church a thousand years ago to us tonight i have this complaint against you this is the word of the lord to you let let it be as if jesus is speaking to you he goes i have this complaint against you verse four you don't love me or each other as much as you did at first and let that sink in you you don't love me or each other as much as you did at first look how far you've fallen turn back to me and do the works you did at first and if you don't repent i will come and I'll remove your lampstands from its place among the churches. Verse six, but this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans, just as I do. Verse seven, anyone who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says. Anyone who has understanding what he's saying to the churches, to everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. So before Jesus even rebukes them, he says, there is some good about you. There's some good about you. Even reading from it, you know, you serve Jesus. Now, some of you think Jesus would never rebuke you. He's nice, but I want you to notice the opening of Revelation. He's rebuking the church of Ephesus 
And he's saying, look, it, there's some good stuff about you, but there's also some faults. There's some areas I got to point out. And the bad, if you don't change, I'm going to remove your lampstand. I'm going to remove your influence. You'll no longer be influential. You'll no longer have power in the culture. You'll no longer bring people to the cross. You'll no longer lay hands on the sick and prophesy and do these things once your influence is removed. Now, I want you to see Jesus comments and says, I see your hard work. So they're not a lazy church. When you read about these believers, they're not lazy. They're not like sitting around. They're not some country club. He says, I see your work. And they're fulfilling James chapter one, verse 22, that says, be doers of the word, not only hearers deceiving yourself. So he says, listen, you're doing the work and you're actually laboring. I see that. Now, the people in Ephesus also patiently persevered. In the original Greek text, the word translated patient means to bear up under a load. It's also translated to persevere under difficult circumstances with a steady determination. So these were persevering Christians. They were steady. They were running the race and they were against tremendous opposition and persecution in Ephesus. So you have to understand this, the church in Ephesus and Ephesus in general was a key center of culture and trade in Asia Minor. It was also a center for religious activity, for pagan activity. The city sat on a seaport trade route that ran from east to west and therefore had imported emperor worship from Rome. So these were these were people that were worshiping the Roman Empire. They were worshiping the idols and the gods of Rome, Zeus, Hades, all of these gods. Once a year, citizens had to look at the statue of Caesar and say publicly, Caesar is my Lord. And because Christians refused to say that, they were being killed. They were being persecuted. Also, there was a lot of magic worship, Eastern worship. Um, they had centers of worship for Diana there and goddesses from all over Asia. But despite this persecution, the Christians in, Christians in Ephesus per persevered and remained faithful. Here's what I want you to see. When Paul is writing to the church in Romans saying, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you're going to be saved. The reason why Paul said that is because they used to make them say, and even the money had Caesar is Lord on the coin. And what Paul was saying is you need to confess when they tell you to confess Caesar is Lord. You need to confess that Jesus is Lord. And when you do that, they're going to kill you. But don't worry, because if you confess Jesus is Lord, you're going to be saved. You're not going to go to hell. You're going to go to heaven when they persecute you. And somehow we've turned that into the sinner's prayer. So now we say, oh, just pray a prayer and say Jesus is Lord. And Paul says, no, this was because in Rome, they were commanding them to say Caesar is Lord. So they were in all out idol worship in Ephesus. This is what he's writing to. Now they had also discernment because Jesus said, you're doctrinally sound. You know how to discern. You're calling out false prophets. And in verse six, he said, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now the Nicolaitans, most people believe they follow Nicholas of Antioch, who appears to have basically taken the grace of God to an extreme and told them live however you want. Now that you're under grace, you can sin however you want. And a lot of people are thinking, well, that's great to me. And that teaching is also in the church today. We have a soft teaching that says, because of the, come on, am I, am I preaching wrong tonight? Because of grace, they say, you can live however you want. And this is most churches, most preachers in America and throughout the world preach this gospel of the Nicolaitans, but God is commending them because he says, you're not preaching that. You're hating this teaching and you're not allowing that. But here's what he says in verse four I have against you. He says, you've left your first love. Now notice he doesn't say you've lost your first love. Listen to what I'm about to say. 
He doesn't say you've lost it. He says you've left it because love for Christ is not something you lose. It's something you leave. Write that down. It's not something you lose. And in other words, you don't accidentally fall out of love with God. Like I have this remote here for my lights. If I lose it, it's accidental. Like where did I put it? I don't know what happened to it, but you can't lose love for God. You could only leave love for God. So if I put this remote down and left it, that's leaving versus losing. A lot of people say you've lost your love. You haven't lost it. You've left it. Don't act like it's God's fault. You've put it down and you've walked away from it. So the words that Christ is giving are important because it implies a process that happens over time. Slowly, we lose our love. Am I the only one that's lost my love? Slowly, we, I'm sorry, not lost my love, left my love. Slowly, we left our love. Slowly, we've got away from it. And the original Greek text was, you no longer love me. Come on, help me tonight, Holy Spirit, preach. You no longer love me like you did at first. Now, how is it possible, guys, that you can be persecuted like the church of Ephesus? You can work hard. You can do the word, the Bible says, and fall out of love with the person you're doing everything in the name of. How is that possible? And the answer is easy. Many of us have done that tonight. Many of us have left our first love. Our hearts have grown cold. We don't love the Lord that we, the way we used to love him. And we get so busy. Come on, I'm preaching to myself in the hustle of ministry that we forget why we started. And Jesus is far more interested in what you do with him than what you do for him. We need to get back to our first love. Some of you remember what it was like when you were on fire, when you burned for God, when you couldn't get enough of them. Come on, before you got that boyfriend or that girlfriend or that new job or that new car, you had a love for God like never before. You were obsessed with God. I could remember this obsession I had. And he said, listen, you've left that even though you're being persecuted, even though you're doing the work of ministry and you're laboring, But I hear the Lord saying tonight by the power of the Holy Ghost that he wants you to return to him. He wants you to return to your first love, to get back to your first love. This is not a game. This is not a joke. Jesus is coming back. Church of Ephesus, hear me tonight. We need to return to our first love. And here's what he says you need to do in verse five. You need to remember, write this down. You need to repent and you need to repeat. He says this, think back to the time that you first received Christ, that you were on fire right now, right now, you need to remember, like this is the key to getting back. Remember where you were when you first said, Lord, save me. I love you. I'll do anything for you. When you're, you're breaking the games, you're breaking the music, you're breaking up with the boyfriend, the girlfriend. He says, remember, go back to that place of intimacy where you felt so close to Jesus. He says, once you've remembered, this is what he tells the church of Ephesus. Once you've remembered, then I want you to repent. Now in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you need to repent. That's the second thing you need to do, church. And then third, he says, you need to repeat your first works. Get back into studying your Bible. Come on, I don't care if you need to go to Starbucks, whatever you used to do. He says, get back from study, get back to what you used to do in the beginning. Get back to prayer. Get back to telling others about Jesus. Do the things, even if you don't feel like doing them, because your feelings follow your will. So choose to do them. Some of you are waiting around. When I feel like witnessing, I'll witness. When I feel like reading my Bible, I'll read my Bible. When I feel like praying, you're never going to feel it. You need to understand that your feelings follow your will. Your will doesn't follow your feelings. So I make myself pray. 
I make myself preach. I make myself fast. I make myself get in the word of God because if I go back and do the things I used to do, I'll find where I left my first love. Where did you leave it? Maybe you left it somewhere. Maybe you left it for a job. Maybe you left it for a boyfriend. Maybe you left it for a girlfriend. Maybe you left it for a marriage. And the Lord is saying, you need to go back and find it. And all of this is crucial because here's what's scary. Jesus says, I'm not going to stick around if you keep playing games with me. I don't care that you're laboring. I don't care that you're being persecuted. I don't care that you're working hard and not tolerating false doctrine. He says this, if you don't get back, I'm not sticking around. He says in verse five, and if I will remove the lampstand, a church that doesn't love me will get their lampstand removed. And if he removes the lampstand, we lose the opportunity to make an impact on the world. So I'm telling you tonight with urgency, don't put your spiritual life on cruise control. You need to hit the accelerator on your spiritual life. You need to repent. You need to remember. You need to turn back. You need to go do the beginning works because the Bible says that God rewards those who diligently seek him. You need to seek the Lord with all of your heart. Don't get so busy doing things for the king that you forget the king. This is the church of Ephesus. Church number one, again, this is not exhaustive. This is an overview. The church that left its first love. Church number two, the church of Smyrna. The church of Smyrna is in Revelation chapter two, verse eight, as we move through Revelation. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This is the message. Here's another message from the one who is the first and the last, who was dead. Notice how, notice through these letters, Jesus is introducing himself in a different way. Who was dead, but is now alive. Verse nine, I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. This is what the Lord is saying to the church. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they're Jews, but they're not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. And those for all of you that are like, are Pharisees still Christians? This is what Jesus says. Their synagogue belongs to Satan. Don't be afraid for what you're about to suffer. The devil, the devil, listen to what he says here. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days, but if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to what the spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. So here's the second church in um, Smyrna. Number one, there's no rebuke for this church. He says, here's what I want you guys to understand. You are under and you're coming under incredible persecution and suffering. Now, this for many of you listening in America, this is not matter to you because you're like, I've never been persecuted. I want to give you this bold warning what the Lord has showed me. We are getting ready and we will come under in, intense persecution in the days ahead. I'm talking about martyred, getting persecuted, hate crime. People are going to hate us. They're going to kill us. They're going to martyr us. So don't think that this is not happening right now because it's happening all over the world. And this letter, I, as I read this in Revelation 2.8, reminds me and makes me think of the church in Afghanistan. And here's what I want you to understand. Hebrews 13.3 says, remember those in prison as if you were there yourself. Remember those being mistreated as if you felt the pain in your own body. Now, if you are in prison right now for being a Christian, like many are all over the world, are you going to forget that you're in prison? Are you going to be in prison and be like, oh man, it's Sunday. I totally forgot I was in prison. No, you're going to always know I'm in prison. And the writer of Hebrews says, remember them as if you were in prison. Remember them as if you yourself were in prison. 
So this should be every day we should somehow remember those that are in prison. And he says, remember those being mistreated as if you felt the pain in your own body. So again, today I won't go into detail because it's graphic. I was reading about what the Taliban is doing right now as I preach, what the Taliban is doing to believers, that they're skinning them alive, they're putting them on crosses, they're taking their children. And I can't go into detail because it'll get flagged and taken down, but it's unspeakable what they're doing. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says in uh, chapter 13, as if they're doing it to you, as if you felt the pain in your own body, as if when you read about it and you hear about these atrocious crimes, you're, you're like, it hurts me. I feel it in my own body because these are my brothers and sisters. And guys, I want you to think about this. I wrote our Demon Slayer group, our, our group text. I said, guys, my heart is broken because I am right now and I get emotional talking about it and I'm trying not to get emotional here, but I'm right now in my office streaming all over the world to 4,000 people, almost 3,900 people live. My wife and kids are out there, you know, eating whatever they want to eat on our nice couch, listening to me stream on my, our big screen and zero persecution. No one's knocking on our door. I have people knocking on my door, you know, trying to sell me solar panels. And here they are hiding underground, running from society, running from the governor. They can't call the police because the police are the ones that are after them being persecuted by the Taliban for their faith. And the next knock on the door, the Taliban comes in, takes their children and does unspeakable things to them and their children. Like literally right now, this is happening while me and you are getting DoorDash and getting Wingstop. I mean, this is, now thinking about this, it's so far from reality because I can't even imagine somebody knocking on my door and saying, if you don't renounce your faith, I'm taking your four daughters. This is where, this is their life. This is how they live. Now, again, I don't know how I can use my platform to help them. I'm gonna connect with one of the guys this week that's working with the churches in Afghanistan. But guys, this is what we have to remember. These, these, I can't just sit by, live stream, be in my comfortable house and not do something and not help somehow because these are our brothers and sisters. And you have to realize the non-persecuted church is the minority. Most of the world is being persecuted for this for their faith. And in this letter, the Lord does not say, I'm gonna deliver you, Church of Smyrna. He says, I'm going to reward you. In other words, I'm going to allow you to be persecuted, but don't worry because if you remain faithful, I'm going to give you the crown of life. Now again, this these passages mean nothing to you because you don't get persecuted. You don't even share your faith at work when you're allowed to. God forbid we do it when we're allowed to, yet they're doing it when they're not allowed to. He says, I know you're in poverty. This was a church in poverty. He says, but I say you're rich. So you have to understand that we might be rich in America in the world's eyes, but does Jesus call us rich? Some of the richest Christians live in third world countries and some of the poorest Christians live in America because you could have a million dollars in your bank and be poor according to Jesus. I don't want to be poor in the eyes of Jesus and rich in the eyes of man. I would rather be poor in the eyes of man and rich in the eyes of Jesus because Jesus said these believers were persecuted, but I believe the church in Afghanistan is a thousand times richer than the church in America in our fancy buildings and our $150,000, $300,000 a year salaries and our you know huge buildings, huge air conditioned units, huge light systems, the millions of dollars we spend on lights and on sound and on equipment. I believe the church in Afghanistan is infinitely richer than the church of America according to this passage. So many of us have wealth, but we're spiritually bankrupt. Now during suffering, because we will suffer, and, I, and please, 
If you're like, why does this matter to me? There's many believers in the chat that are in other parts of the world that are being persecuted. During suffering, we have a choice to be bitter or to be better. Pain is like a chisel that will either shape you or destroy you. And you have to choose to let the suffering either shape you and mold you or to destroy you. So please know that inevitably a day of persecution is coming to America. Matthew chapter 5 verse 10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs to the persecuted church. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. So Timothy, understand, everybody, Paul says, that wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Maybe we're not being persecuted because we're not living a godly life. We're living an American westernized life, a westernized Jesus. 2 Corinthians 12, uh, t- 10 says, that is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness in insults and in hardships and persecutions and difficulties for when I am weak, then I am strong. So the weaker I get, the stronger Christ gets. Luke 6, 22, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they insult you, when they reject you because of the son of man. Over and over, Jesus talks about persecution. This is a real reality. And just because you don't face it doesn't mean it's not happening all over the world. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. This is our call. The church in Afghanistan, they pray for the Taliban. This is what they're called to do. So we need to pray for those. So stop being one of these believers that are like, someone made fun of me. Think about this. This week, people were saying, what do you think about people on YouTube that are, you know, talking bad about you or making fun of you or slandering you or saying you're false? And you know what I could think about? Is that really even a question when my brothers and sisters in Afghanistan are running right now as I speak from the control of the Taliban being martyred? You think I care? You think I'm, I really care about what some basement dweller makes a video about me on YouTube that's doing nothing for God when there's people out there for their faith? That's not persecution. Friend, listen to me closely. People making YouTube videos about me is not persecution. Having someone knock at my door and take my children and then murder them in front of me, that's persecution. So I don't even waste my time licking my wounds and crying about, oh, somebody made a Facebook post about me, a YouTube video about me. No, I'm going to spend that time praying for my persecuted brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. This is what we need to do. So you need to understand this. The city, Smyrna, was incredibly wealthy. The church was poor, but God says, I have a crown for you. Even though you're in the midst of a city full of shrines, false gods, they had gods there of Aphrodite, Apollo, Zeus, all these gods are there. These, this church is poor. They're remaining faithful. They're being persecuted. And God said, this is the church. I have nothing bad to say about, but I have a crown of life for this church. And this is understand in the midst of persecution, they're remaining strong. Now, Jesus' solution to persecution was remain faithful because they're going to kill you. They're going to throw you in prison, but I want you to remain faithful. Now, I read an article today about a pastor in a persecuted nation. And he said this. He's a pastor in a persecuted church. He said, it's the strangest thing where the war has been the bloodiest, where the needs are the most desperate. This is where the church has grown the most. Yes, brethren, become martyrs. Yet remember, this is what he said, and I get, I get all emotional talking about this. The heavier the cross, the more powerful the resurrection. This is a pastor in the persecuted nation 
Lord, I pray tonight, Lord, help us to get our eyes off the natural and understand that this is a reality for so many people. Imagine so many Christians in this uh, city that are preaching against idol, the persecution that they went through. And Jesus opens the opening statement to this church in verse 8, as this is the message from the one who was, who is the first and the last, who is dead and is now alive. In other words, here's why Jesus opened up the story like this. He said this, I've been there. I've been there. Church, I could relate. He's telling this persecuted church, I was dead. They killed me and I'm alive again. He says, I know what you're going through. I know what it's like to be persecuted. I know what it's like to be in poverty. I know what it's like to be slandered. I know what it's like to suffer death. I'm the first. I'm the last. I was there in the beginning. I was there in the middle. I'm there at the end. I know what you're going through. I know your works, your tribulation, your poverty. And yet he calls them rich. The church in Afghanistan, the Lord calls them rich, calls them blessed because of the persecution they've gone through. And you know, I'm, I get frustrated because in America, we're so lavish and we're so extravagant. We have so much, yet we have so little in the eyes of God. But here's what Jesus said. I'm going to offer you the crown of life, the promise that these believers will not be hurt by the second death. That is spiritual death, but they're only going to die once. And then they're going to have the promise of eternal life. Number three, the church of Pergamum in Revelation chapter two, verse 12. He said, write this letter to the angel of the church of Pergamum. This message is from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. He said, I know that you live in a city where Satan has his throne, yet you've remained loyal to me. You've refused to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you that are teaching that of Balaam, who have showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them how to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who followed the same teaching. Verse 16, repent of your sin or I will come suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And then he goes, anyone that hears, let him hear what the Spirit's saying. Um, and then he says, to everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven, and I'll give it to each one on a white, each one a white stone, and on that stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the name of the one that receives it. So this is a church that is suffering from crippling compromise. This was the compromised church. And this is the church of today. This is the church that lives in darkness, that preaches the Bible, but allows compromise to be in the church. Now, I want you to recognize these people lived in a tough place. They were, they were light in the midst of darkness, but the Bible says in verse 12, this was where Satan had his throne. So the church of Pergamum was in Satan's headquarters. Now, understand according to this, Satan is not in hell. Many of you think Satan's in hell. He's not in hell. He's on the earth alive and well. Remember, Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, He's like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Jesus called him the God of this world, the prince of this age. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, he's very active, write that down, and very mobile. And these people remain loyal except that they allowed false teaching to come pollute them and give them false doctrine. Now, the New Testament mentions the word doctrine 37 times. We're told, for example, that the church in Jerusalem continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, Paul wrote, Till I come, give attendance to doctrine. In 1 Timothy 4, 13, to Titus, he said, Speak these things which are proper and sound doctrine. In Titus chapter 2, verse 1, so doctrine matters. And this church started following the doctrine of Balaam. 
And if the church doesn't have sound doctrine, they're going to start following false doctrine. So the Old Testament, if you look at Balaam, is in Numbers 22 through 24. It represents a doctrine of greed, a doctrine of covetousness, and a doctrine of compromise. So this was a place that it was allowing compromise to come in where they were basically going to church on Sunday, but then throughout the week, they were bowing to other gods. Does this sound familiar to anybody? As long as we go on Sunday, we worship God. On Throughout the week, we're going to bow to false gods. We're going to worship pagan altars, pagan idols. Come on, over 4,000 watching, share this. And they're going to give into, again, the Nicolaitans, extreme grace. Basically, live however you want. There's no holiness. There's no standard anymore. Go to church on Sunday. Watch what you want through the week. Listen to what you want to listen to through the week. Don't live to that standard of holiness. No compromise. Live however you want. Now, if you know me, I am a holiness preacher, and I believe that holiness is going to become great again. I believe we need to break the compromise because here's what Jesus says to him that overcomes. He says, I'll give you some hidden manna to eat. Verse 17. Now, when ancient Israel wandered for 40 years in the desert, God gave them manna, and this was what nourished them. So the hidden message is this, overcome this tolerance, this false teaching, and I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to give you true pleasure. I'm going to give you true riches. I'm going to give you true love. But as long as there's compromise, I can't give you the hidden manna. I can't give you the manna that comes from my father that I've hidden in heaven to nourish you and to provide for you because you've allowed so much compromise in the church and you've allowed so much false teaching. Okay. Again, this is not exhaustive. The last church we're going to talk about tonight because we're an hour and five minutes in and we're barely on chapter two of Revelation. And as the weeks go, I hope you like this teaching as we go through literally the entire, we go through the book systematically. I've never done this. I'm out of my comfort zone to be honest with you guys, but the Lord told me, get out of your comfort zone, do something new. I hope you guys like this. Uh, Fourth church is a church of Thyatira. Now I've already done a long teaching on this about Jezebel, so I won't go into deep, but let's just read this here in Revelation uh, verse 18. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished brass. This is what he says in verse 19. I know all the things you do. I've seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance, and I can see your constant improvement in all these things. So he comes to me, he says, listen, I see all these great things that you're improving, that you have faith, that you're serving, that you're patient. But he says, I have this complaint against you. You're permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering. And to those who commit adultery with her, they will suffer greatly unless unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I'm the one who searches the thoughts and the intentions of every person, and I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. But I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching, these deeper truth, the depths of Satan, actually. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come, to all who are victorious who obey me to the very end. To them, listen what he says, to them who overcome, I will give authority over all nations, They will rule the nations with an iron rod and and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I received from my father and I will also give them the morning star. Anyone who has ears, let him hear. Okay, he says that after every single time. So this is a church 
that is tolerating a Jezebel spirit. Man, these all sound like the church in America, except for the persecuted church. They are tolerating a Jezebel spirit to run rampant. And the Lord says, although you have all these good things, you're allowing Jezebel to come in and to teach my prophets. So understand as pastors and leaders, we will be accountable for what we allow in our church. Understand this. I did an hour and a half teaching on the spirit of Jezebel because the spirit is running many churches. The spirit is preaching behind many pulpits and it's teaching us that sexual immorality is okay. And he says, not only am I going to kill Jezebel, kill her children, but anyone that partakes in this sexual immorality is also going to have the same repercussions. So this is the problem in the church here. This last church I'm going over. Nobody was challenging Satan. Nobody was challenging darkness. They were giving free reign to teach and let Jezebel and let sexual immorality. And again, this is a spirit to teach and do whatever they wanted to do. And this is the church of today. Who is challenging darkness? Who is challenging Jezebel? Who is challenging sexual immorality and sexual sin in the church of today? We need people that are going to stand up in the midst of darkness. This last letter is about discernment. This last letter of chapter two, it's about discernment. Now, John says something interesting, and this is what I want to leave you with. John said, there's a prize if you overcome the spirit. There's a reward for overcoming. What are you overcoming? The spirit of Jezebel. He says this, this is the reward you get. You get power and you get power over nations and the morning star. Now, the morning star, according to Revelation 22, is Jesus. He's the morning star. So here's what you get when you overcome the power of Jezebel and the spirit of Jezebel. You get God. You get spiritual authority and power in the spiritual realm. He says the same authority the Father gives me. If you overcome, if you remain faithful, this is what you get. You get power. And I believe tonight many of you are going to overcome this demonic spirit. Many of you are going to overcome lust and sexual sin in Jesus' name tonight. And I want to pray for you. And I want to ask the Lord. We're an hour and 10 minutes in. I know we can go longer. We will go longer. We'll break down more as the weeks go on. And we'll see how the Lord leads. Maybe we won't do it every single time we do a Monday Night Fire. But we'll work as the weeks go on. We'll work it into our other teachings. But I believe this is a good introduction for many of you. A lot of people are getting saved. A lot of people are getting delivered. And they're like, Isaiah, I don't know where to start. I don't know how to read the Bible. And so I want to really try to do some of these more systematic teachings because I believe it's going to give you an appetite. I believe many of you, type one, are going to be like, after hearing this word, I want to get into the word of God. Come on, type one. I want to read Revelation. I want to dive in. I'm getting an appetite for the word of God now. And this is what I'm going to pray over you. Lord, I pray, Jesus, that we would get to know you. I pray, Lord, as we work through the book of Revelation, that this would be the revelation of you. That, God, we want to know you. We want to serve you. God, let us not leave our first love. Come on, right now, many of you are coming back to your first love. Tonight's the night that you come back to your first love in Jesus' name. Father, I pray that you would restore our hunger. You'd restore our passion. You'd restore our fire. Lord, I pray that we would come back to our first love. Those of us that have left our first love, Lord, the Lord says, you've left me. The Lord says, you've left me. Come back to me, Israel. Come back to me, Jeremiah. Return to your first love in Jesus' name. Lord, let us return to our first love, God. Father, if I've left my first love, I'll be the first one tonight to say, Lord, let me return to my first love. God, let me go back to do those things in the beginning, God. Make my heart tender, Father. I pray I would never get so busy. Come on, pray, church. I would never get so busy working for you 
that I forget who you are. I, I never want to be that one that stands and you say, you prophesied, you did miracles, you cast out demons, depart from me, I don't know you, Father. I want to know you, God. I want to know you, Lord. And I pray tonight, I pray, Holy Spirit, that I would know you like never before. I pray, Lord, your people would know you like never before. God, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the church. I pray, Lord, that even those being persecuted, that God, you would be with them tonight, Lord. Come on, church, pray. I pray for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, Lord, that you would be with them tonight in Jesus' name. Be with our persecuted brothers and sisters, God. Lord, I pray those of us that are in compromised church, God, break the compromise. Break the compromise off your church, I pray in Jesus' name, God. Let us not be a compromised church. Let us not be a church that gives into status quo. Let us not be a church that gives into culture. But Father, break compromise off our pastors, our leaders, Lord, that they're dead, they're dry, they're soft. God, we don't need any more soft pastors. We don't need any more soft sermons. Father, we need men and women of God that will stand up and challenge the status quo, that will challenge the powers of darkness in these last days. So Father, I pray, raise up John the Baptist's. Come on, let's pray right now. Let's just have an all-out prayer meeting. Lord, raise up the John the Baptist's in these last days. Lord, raise up the warriors in these last days, God. Raise up preachers that are going to preach with boldness, that are going to preach with clarity that are going to preach with fire. Father, I pray, do what only you can do. Holy Ghost, release your power over our churches. God, restore the churches in South Africa, in India, in the Philippines, God, in the Middle East, God, in the Netherlands, Father. I pray, Holy Spirit, right now in the Bahamas, spark revival. In Jamaica, spark revival, God, in America. Lord, don't remove the lamp. Don't remove the lampstand. Don't remove us, God. We need your light. We need your power. We need your anointing. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. If you like what you heard, go to www.isaiahsaldivar.com for more content. And please follow me on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at Isaiah Saldivar. See you next week.